This morning we're going to be working on um, a polemic against uh, plausible sounding alternatives to what we learned last week. So what did we talk about last week? What's that? Yeah, total depravity, and also, what was the other one? Total sufficiency. Total depravity, total sufficiency. The sufficiency of Scripture, and then the condition of man. If you get those two things wrong, then everything else that we're talking about, you're going to be off course. I would say if you get those two things wrong, most of your Christianity is going to be off course. Or at least you're going to have a number of bumps in the roads as, as the Lord straightens those, those, those things out. In order to understand soul care, we're talking about caring for, for other people's souls, and, and we're talking about doing that in a biblical way, then we need to understand what the Bible says about, about man. And then we also need to understand what the Bible says about, about the, uh, uh, the Bible. And if I would summarize last week, we said the well, a good way of saying it is the Creator knows. I mean, think about this: if God is powerful enough to speak the world into existence and make us and create us, then surely God is powerful enough to communicate to us, which He did, and then we also would conclude that that what He's communicated is is according to his character. It's accurate. There's no errors in it. It's sufficient. Or you can simplify that and say the creator knows his creation. I mean, what I think about you or the discernment that I can bring in looking into your life as you know, one man to another, it may be helpful. I may be able to make some observations, but there's a, there's a significant part of your life that, that I can't see. I don't see your motives. I don't see your heart. I don't even see what goes on you know, behind behind closed doors, but God does. God knows knows all of that. Let me complicate it even even further for us. Not only let's say I could see your motives, I could see all of the intentions of your heart. Let's say I could see in the in the dark places, the places that that nobody else sees and knows. The Bible says my discernment is imperfect. My mind is broken. I can't even I can't even always draw proper conclusions. You, you remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians. I'm paraphrasing, First Corinthians four. He said it's a it's a small thing for me to be evaluated by you. I don't know of anything against myself. My conscience is clear. I, you know I know I didn't do what you think that I did, Corinthians. Before the Lord, my conscience is clear. But then what does he say? But not even that. That doesn't even equip me. It's not going to be until the last day when it's going to be revealed. Well, what's he talking about? When God actually reveals everything. And so there's an aspect where we're supposed to be suspect of our, of our own hearts. And we know this passage well, Jeremiah 17:9. Our heart is deceitful, and it's desperately wicked. So thankfully, God gives us a new heart in Jesus Christ. Gives us new desires. Thankfully, the Spirit of God lives in us, and His 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 work is is in, is an empowering work. Um, it's a it's an illuminating work. It helps us understand the Bible. The natural man doesn't understand the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. The Spirit gives us the ability to to discern. It gives us new desires, a new heart, as we say. The Spirit of God, and then the Lord's also provided us the. The Word of God, and even as we saw on Sunday night, the church to help. What we're doing in here this morning is 
is part of the process. So God knows um, and his, his word is sufficient. So our video this morning, if you've been listening to Ecclesiastes at all, <clears throat> you may have heard me mention a man named Dr. Bill Barrick, who is my Old Testament and Hebrew professor. Um, he's retired now. Dr. Barrick uh, was on the mission field for 12 or 13 years um, in Indonesia, uh, translated the entire Old Testament into, I'm sorry, he was in Bangladesh, translated the entire Old Testament in, I forget how many different Bangladeshi dialects. So anybody like, anybody that goes on the mission field has my respect. Anybody that can translate the Old Testament period has my respect, much less in multiple dialects. And, um, and then he, he taught uh, me and many others. And this is a little video on the sufficiency of Scripture that's going to set up our talk for this morning. We're not going to watch the whole thing. It's nine minutes. Uh, we'll probably stop around six or seven, but I'll tell. Around today, not only the United States, but around the world, has to do with the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, we say, well, of course, the Bible is God's Word. It's got to be something that is sufficient for my faith and for my practice. It's authoritative. It is my guidebook. It is uh, that to which I go to find out what God wants of me, what I should believe, what I should do. But, you know, in, in today's society, we have some uh, contradictions that slip into the way that we treat Scripture, the way we approach Scripture. We see that happen, especially if we have a back background of secular education. We're trained to be critical thinkers. We're trained to think for ourselves. And people will say, well, what do you think about this? Don't, don't tell me what the Bible says. I can read that for myself. What do you think about this? And yet we are brought back to this concept that if I don't say something that is consistent with the teaching of Scripture, then how can my declaration prove to be authoritative in any fashion? And how can that which I say be sufficient? for someone to believe or someone to act or to do something. When we think about that today, we look at people deriving their theology from a philosophical template maybe, where they're looking at things and trying to organize systematic theology into categories and uh, trying to explain things in uh, what they consider to be in a very organized way. Or it can be the fact that when we approach certain issues or problems, whether in the Old Testament or the New, dealing with culture, dealing with history, dealing with backgrounds especially, that we tend to look more at, oh, archaeology has this wonderful find. There's been a great find in Jerusalem. The city of David is being uncovered. This great building is being unearthed. And now we have some more proof that David was not a myth. That's, he's, he's not a legend. He's a real person. He lived historically. And so we get excited about archaeological finds. And uh, we may look at that and say, well, well of course, uh, finds are exciting. We see confirmation of Scripture. But what happens is sometimes we suddenly say, well, now I have grounds to believe that David really did exist. Or now I have the evidence that I've been looking for that helps me to trust that the exodus from Egypt took place in the 15th century before Christ. Now, when we make statements like that, what we're saying, in essence, is I, I really couldn't depend on and trust totally 
what the scriptures said. I need this archaeological or historical evidence in order to convince me that this is true, or at least to make me feel, say, comfortable. This is what is involved in the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture is a statement that says that the scripture is sufficient for belief and for life. And we could add to that. It's sufficient for developing theology. It's sufficient for interpreting the text of the scriptures. The sufficiency of scripture is really an outgrowth of the authority of scripture. If the scripture is God's word, then he is the ultimate author. It's not a human author. It's not Obadiah or Solomon or Moses or Paul or Peter. It is God who's the ultimate author. Now, if God is the ultimate author, then he's the one who is the truth teller, the truth speaker. So if God is true or that truth characterizes God, then God's word must be true. If God can be trusted, then his word must be trusted. We cannot have a cognitive disconnect. We cannot say that, well, you know, I, I accept that God is truth, and God is true. Let every man be a liar. But when it comes to the date of the Exodus, I want more proof or more evidence than just what the Scripture has to say in Judges chapter 11 or in 1 Kings chapter 6. And when we begin making that type of statement, we begin hedging on the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. We're really coming down to saying what it amounts to is I will accept the authority of Scripture and its sufficiency if I am satisfied with it on the basis of my human powers of critical thinking and rational judgment. Who is the authority then in that case? It is ourselves, rather than God, who has become the authority. And there are only three types of spiritual authority. And that is either God and his inerrant word. Or it's going to be the church and its infallible, quote-unquote, leadership, whether we call them popes or whether we call them pastors or whatever we call them, teachers or seminary professors. And the third area is Man and his own self-styled authority. Whose authority is the highest? Thank Which you. authority will we rely upon for spiritual life truth? So I think that's really good. If you have an ESV, uh, Dr. Barrick was on the translation committee for the, the ESV. One of the things I appreciate about him is he is... He's not an erudite egghead, although he has the, the, the capability uh, to be one. So what did he say about, uh, about the sufficiency of Scripture? Did you see those, those two competing worldviews? React to that a little bit. Clarifying? Helpful? I think it's all about faith. Yeah? Do you have faith in what God told you, or do you have to prove it to yeah. yourself? Yeah. Yeah, did you notice what, what he was saying where, where you begin to put the weight is what, is what really matters. Um, one of the things that really helped me with the approach to preaching was, was a paradigm that, that he didn't complete. Um, he, he did up to, up to his point, but I, I can take a little bit farther. 
there's a God, and he's true. He's, he's perfect. Um, he's truthful. He's, he is, his character is, is, is pure. His character is truthful. Therefore, whatever comes from that God, whatever he speaks, is, is congruent with his character. He's true. So now you, you're down to the Bible. There's a God, and what comes from him is, is congruent or matches his character, and in this case, it's the Bible. And if that's true about the Bible, then what is my job to do with the Bible? It's not to add to it or take away from it. It's to speak the, the very truth that, that he's provided here, and what's the best way in order to, to do that? To, to read what God said and synthesize it and then try to reproduce it to you? Or is it just to say exactly what, you know, what, God, has, what God has said? It's one of the things that drives me to exposition, yeah? I was just going to comment on, I think you made a comment about history and kind of mm-hmm. obviously giving primacy to Scripture. But I do think it's important to, to remember that Scripture contains history. That it's not what we often will just say is a blind faith. Um, it's not a blind faith. God came and entered history in the person of Jesus Holy. Christ. And we have a historical resurrection. We have a historical death on the cross. Absolutely. So we're, we are rooted in an objective, grounded truth where Christ entered the world. Totally. No doubt about it. I think what he's arguing against with the archaeology and otherwise is that somehow now that is what proves the historical record that's in the Bible. The Bible is a historical record. Archaeology, you know, may go, oh, wow, well, you know, when I, they find something in Israel that's wonderful, I'll go see it. But whenever they find it and write about it, I, I say, you know, big deal. God's already told me that, that there was a David and there's a, <laughs> that there's a palace. Now they're digging it out of the ground so they can, you know, so they can see it. But, but the Bible validates history. History doesn't validate Right. That's an easy way of you know, saying it. The Bible rightly interprets reality. Well, look at page uh, 111. We're going to talk about some plausible-sounding alternatives. If you don't have this worldview, that there is a God and his word is what rightly interprets reality, where are you going to go? How are you going to deal with some of the really difficult problems of, of, of life? Um, emotional problems, behavioral problems, um, those types of things. Well, there's a number of plausible-sounding alternatives that human beings that have rejected the Bible uh, have, uh, have tried to insert. And so we're talking about a polemic against plausible-sounding alternatives. Other claims to care for the soul offer competing explanations. As to the first causes or the maladies that we experience, as such, they must be discerned and examined. As these competing explanations challenge and contradict the doctrine of the sufficiency of of Scripture. And because they don't address ultimate causes, they don't provide an ultimate Soul care. Now, why, notice the first cause and ultimate causes and ultimate soul care. And as we said last time, we're going to talk about psychology, it, one of the, 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 the plausible sounding alternatives. It doesn't mean, when, when we say a, a psychologized gospel or, or uh, 
you know, psychiatry in and of itself. It doesn't mean that, that psychology, uh, you know, is, is unable to, to tell us anything. If you stand back for a couple hundred years and evaluate and, and, and categorize human behavior, then, then you're going to see some things that match. And that shouldn't surprise us because 1 Corinthians says, there's no temptation taking you but such which is common unto man. So man's the same. We're the same as we were in Abraham's day. Culture's different. It may manifest a little bit different, but at the core, it's the same. We respond the same way. God's the same. I'm the Lord. I change not. And then the answer is is the same. So we're not saying that that observations and and uh, uh, and, and as people categorize human behavior, that, that somehow that's that's unhelpful uh, in its in its totality. What we are saying is it doesn't have the answer. That's about as far as they can go. So what is the answer? Well, let's look at at some of the ways that. Um, that people try to find an answer outside of the outside of the Bible. Um, they don't provide the ultimate cause. They don't address the ultimate cause, so they don't provide ultimate soul care. Psychology in many forms. Now, Tracy has a a secular degree in counseling and rehab. Started on her master's, and then she had Bailey, so she she went home. She finished her master's at Liberty, and of course did the biblical counseling alternative. But um, if she was here, uh, she would tell you, yes, I remember all of these names, and I would like to forget all of these names. Freud, Adler, Skinner, Ellis, Rogers, Ackerman, you, you've probably heard them too if you have been in any type of, of education. Um, so what are some plausible alternatives? All of these are in search of a blame. How do you explain the maladies of the soul. How do you explain mental health and mental disorders and um, those type of things? Well, one approach is called depth psychology. This is probably what you think of. When you think of psychology, don't you think of the, the man Sigmund Freud? I mean, you know, there's a Freudism, a Freudian slip. Um, well, we're not going to give you a lesson on everything about Freud. One of the things that... that that you should know is he was a he called himself a uh, a hopeless pagan and a godless Jew. I think it's the way that it went. This approach to dealing with souls of individuals it's it's a classic psychoanalytic approach that focuses on the conscious and unconscious. You've heard about your subconscious. Freud looked at the mind uh, as a terrain, and so there are different layers that that are that are in there. You know, and so he, he used terms like the psyche, which you're probably familiar with. And it was there was a there was a progress. You're partially conscious of what's going on in your life. If you're dealing with an issue, you may be partially conscious of what the issue is, but there also may be an unconscious part that you don't know. So we need to ask you, how did your mommy treat you whenever you were young? Or, or how did you deal with, uh, you know, was there some traumatic event in your life? Because you may be repressing something. There may be an unconscious part of you. So we want to kind of unearth what that, what that is. And, and, and this approach is used to, to reveal uh, underlying motives. What's the underlying motive behind? And you may not even know what that is. Well, the Bible says a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What comes out of your heart 
Now, you may need a counselor or another brother to come along. The Bible also says that your heart is like deep water. It's a wise man that's able to draw it out. So somebody may come along and help you. But there's no, there's nothing in Scripture that says there's an unconscious or a subconscious. There's a part of you that you don't know. There's nowhere that it talks about contours of the mind, the id, the ego, or otherwise. But So that's a, a classic psychoanalytic approach. Lay on the couch. And let me ask you a bunch of questions, and then I'm going to tell you exactly what's, what's going on. Well, there's another one. That didn't work, and so um, Thomas Adler came along. These are neo-Freudians, new Freuds, and he brought in a sociological effect. It's not just the unconscious, but others affect us. If you want to, I mean, of course, I'm oversimplifying massive studies in psychology to try to kind of give you uh, an idea. Uh, but Adler brought in sociological effects. Others affect us. So you're either moving toward, against, or away from, uh, from another. So they want to evaluate how are you responding to others, how have others affected you. And so there are these contours in the mind. There may be conscious and subconscious, but, but there's a sociological effect. Um, very concerned about your your environment and how that has affected you. Well, then you you have uh, Skinner. So here's another approach: psychology in as many for, uh, forms, behaviorism. And so Skinner came along and said, behavior comes from conditioning. Um, we treat bad behaviors by changing patterns. Thinking, emotion, moods are too subjective, Skinner said. I can't see in that black box, but I can evaluate your behaviors. And one of the reasons that you behave the way that you do is you're conditioned that way. And so it's, it's your conditioning um, that, that has caused your problem, and so we need to change your conditioning. You learned this bad behavior, and so now it's just as simple as teaching you a new way in order to change your behavior. Well, we have a massive problem with that from what we learned last week, right? <laughs> Leopard can't change his spots, and so the heart is, is wicked. And so you might be able to change the outward, but you still have an inward problem. There's also rational emotive theory. Um, people have erroneous beliefs about situations, and that's really the cause of the problem. Notice rational emotive. So, so there's, a, there's erroneous beliefs, rational, about a, a situation, and that's the cause of your problems. It's, it's not what happened to you, but how you view it. And so if you went through a traumatic event, how are you thinking about that traumatic event? That's going to shape the way that, that, that that's really what your problem is. I need to help you think about that, that traumatic event or, you know, or whatever it, it, it might be. Then there's what's called third force. Um, primary proponent of that is Rogers. You probably also are very familiar with Maslow's Hierarchy. Right? Um, I learned that in, in school. This is all about humanism. Third force rejects both behaviorism and uh, 
and a psychodynamic approach, which is why it's called the third force. So the third one to come along and massively change the way psychiatry approached things or the study of psychology. The first was Freud in the psychoanalytic approach. And then there was behavioral, behaviorism. Third force comes along. And this is all about humanism. It's no supernatural. You have absolute free will. There's a basic goodness of man. You're basically good. Well, you hear that everywhere. Just follow your heart, Hallmark Channel says. Um, Disney says follow your heart. Worst um, advice ever. There's a basic goodness of man. And so this emphasizes personal worth, self-actualization. You know, the reason that we do what we're doing is, is self-preservation. And so, you know, man has basic needs and he's working through these basic needs and he's motivated to do what he does in order to have food and shelter and feel good about himself and have relationships and these kinds of, of things. And then there's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that you'll discover about philosophy psychology or anything apart from the Bible is it typically works this way. Philosopher A comes along and comes up with a theory and says this is the way that it works. And everybody buys into that theory and everybody gets excited about it and they start putting it into practice. But then as they do, they realize that it's full of holes. <laughs> it's got some issues. So philosopher B comes along and philosopher B says, philosopher A System is all wet. Here's the, the right way, the real way, the new way. The, the, I fixed the problems. And so then everybody buys into philosopher B, and then they begin to practice it, and guess what happens? It's full of holes, and so somebody else comes along and shoots that full of holes, and philosopher C comes along and says philosopher B was actually wrong as well. Now here is the new way of doing it, and then... D and E and F and G and and that's basically the you know the history of philosophy. It can also be the history of of psychiatry. Um, that was the comp compliments of uh, of Joel James. That little paradigm that that's there. Now, is it possible that philosopher A or philosopher B or philosopher C may have observed some helpful things, some true things? Of course. The problem is. Does it actually provide the, the solution? And the answer to that is, is no. Look at A. Regardless of the form, common to all of these approaches, there's a set of beliefs that, that are offering to explain all of these things that are below. It's a, it's a set of beliefs offering an explanation to man's nature and his makeup. Are we depraved or are we inherently good or are we somewhere in between? I mean, every one of these, that, that's what they're trying to, trying to say. This is the cause. This is the root, the root cause. So they're explaining man's nature. Now, tell me what happens... If, if what, a philosophical model comes along, think about what Dr. Barrick said. A philosophical model comes along. An expert comes along. And what they offer is something that's a, that's a contrary explanation to what you have in the Bible. And there's a conflict there, isn't there? In which way you go 
really, really matters. You figure out where you're where you're going to be on the the opposite end. Man's nature and his makeup. The scripture says that we are two parts: material and immaterial. There's an organic part of you. You have a physical body. So we're not talking about you don't go to the doctor. If you need a surgeon, you don't come to me. I mean, I can. I've got a pocket knife. I, I can get a splinter out or something like that. I can't, I can't mend a, a bone. So there's an organic part of you, and there's, there's, a, there's science and there's study that gives you the ability to fix that. And there's, there, there's medicine and there's tests and there's all the blessings, wonderful blessings, and common grace that, that God provides. There's a material part of you, and there could be a problem in that organic realm. Um, you know, and, and sometimes it, it can... It, it, the, the things that are that are physical can uh, can affect the way that you feel and the way that you think. Um, what's one of the the tools and techniques that they use in interrogation? Sleep deprivation. You go without sleep for two or three days and you figure out how well you're thinking or how you're feeling. Your physical can affect the way that you think and the way that um, the way that, that that you feel. The scripture says there's a physical part. It doesn't deny that at all. Your thyroid gets out of whack. That can affect the way that you feel and the way that, that you think. Talk to a woman who is postpartum. You know, the jokes about when she's in the middle of, of labor, um, she may respond to you a little differently than she does whenever she's not in, in pain. And so chemicals can, can affect us. There's a, there's a physical component to that. But then the Bible says there is an immaterial component. And the Bible uses a bunch of different terms. The heart, your soul, your spirit. So there's a material part and an immaterial part. And so psychiatry comes along and says, well, there's a, there's a third part that you really can't see. There's a part that you can't touch. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, another section into that immaterial part, which is you know, things like the id and the, the ego and the superego and the unconscious and, and all those other things that, that are there. So man's nature and makeup, do we, do we have material and immaterial or, or is there more like an unconscious? And so you can see how those two things clash. And if you buy into that system of thinking, then, then you're, you're off the reservation, as they, as they say. Regardless of the form, common to them all is a set of beliefs offering to explain man's problems. If you come to me, I may not know exactly what's going on in your life, but I can tell you, for the most part, what your problem is because I have a Bible. It's not because I'm really good and great at... at you know, somehow, somehow analyzing how you grew up or the trauma that you went in your life, the Bible tells me no temptation is taking you but such which is common unto man. Now, it might take skill for, for different levels of, of, you know, of, of issues. But every one of these approaches that we've talked about, one of the roots that they're, they're aiming at is why we do what we do. You do what you do because you have been conditioned to do that behaviorally. You do what you do because in your unconscious, or your subconscious, you, you think this way. You do what you do 
because bad socialization, because of your your family. You, you didn't relate well within your family, and that's the reason that you do what you do. Look at the, the third little dash there. They also deal with who is responsible for problems. Well, if I have an unconscious self or I wasn't socialized well in in society or there's behavioral conditioning or there was bad thinking out of the trauma, where's the responsibility? You see how it's shifting the responsibility? Um. It, it does. Um, one of the worst things, let me, let me say it this way. You, as a someone who believes in the sufficiency of Scripture or even a Christian, will get accused of being very cruel and mean because you call things sin. Isn't that a horrible thing to call something sin? That's what the world says. It's just the opposite. It's one of the most loving things that you can do. Why am I saying that? Because sin can be repented of. Sin can be forgiven. Your conscience can be cleansed and and cleared, and God can give you peace in your soul. Think about how horrible it is to tell somebody you have a disorder that you didn't cause, and there's no solution to it, and you're stuck with that the rest of your life. And all I can do for you is explain to you why you have this disorder in an area of your mind that you really can't see or otherwise, or some response that you have no way of going back and fixing. And and now all I can do is help you figure out how to manage that the rest of your life. That's a pretty depressing approach, isn't it? Well, that's basically what you have in in psychiatry. How to treat the problem. They offer how to treat the problem. The answer to all of the above determines how we deal with it. <clears throat> if you want to, I mean, this 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 is a, a simplification. But if you stand back and look at Scripture, Scripture says that we have one of three problems. One of three problems. Now, obviously, the challenge is trying to discern which one of the three problems <laughs> is going on. And sometimes it it can be that you, know, you can be have more than one. It's an organic problem. Okay, if I'm struggling with something, I have an, I could have an organic problem. Something's going on in my physical body. I have a brain tumor. Um, my thyroid's messed up. Sleep deprivation. I'm not eating well. I mean, something's going on in my physical body. So it's organic. It could be organic. And if that's the case, then you may need to go to the medical doctor. But if it's organic, it's testable. You can figure it out. There's a test to figure out whether my thyroid's out of whack. There's a test to figure out whether I have a brain tumor. It's a blood test. There's something, if it's organic, then there is a methodology to figure out if there's something going on organic. Now, you know I come from the medical field, background, and so I credential doctors, and they don't have all the answers, all right? They're wonderful brothers, the ones that are believers, I'm very thankful for them. But, you know, if you go to this doctor, he'll tell you one thing, and this doctor may tell you something else, and so so on and so forth. But my point is, you could have an organic issue, and if you have an organic issue, then you go to people that are trained to know how to do that. So that's number one. It could be organic. 
you could also have a spiritual issue. What do I mean by spiritual issue? The Bible says that there are spiritual forces in the world. There are angels, there are demons, spiritual forces in the world. Um, And so it is entirely possible to face spiritual warfare. It's entirely possible to have demonization or any other number of, of issues that Scripture defines in the spiritual realm. And don't spin off the page there like Pentecostals or Charismatics or others and start talking to the devil. I love MacArthur's line where he says, you know, people are running around commanding the devil to do this and do that. Your kids won't even obey you. Why do you think the devil's going to do what you say? You don't find anywhere in Scripture where you're told to cast the devil out. You're told to, you know, throw holy water on him, do exorcisms or anything else. I understand that Jesus and the disciples did that in the Gospels, but I challenge you to find any place after Jesus ascends, when we actually get into the epistles, when the church is built from Acts, once the, the, the Scripture is complete, the sign gives trail away, I challenge you to find any passage that says you do anything to demons or you do anything to, you know, to Satan. You're told to be aware. Don't be ignorant of his devices. You're told to put on the full armor of God. You're told in Colossians chapter 1 that there's a kingdom of darkness and you're translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son and that happens through the proclamation of the gospel. You're told to appeal to God, to pray when you're talking about spiritual forces. But you're not told to do anything to those spiritual forces. So think about people... Most of the demonology and most of what you'll read about that realm, if you look at the source, the person's writing, it's experiential. I went on the mission field. I went to the witch doctor. The witch doctor did this. He's talked in a deep voice. I saw this happen. It's all experiential. And entire theologies will be developed. by that. I don't doubt that witch doctors are demonized or that they're real demons and, and that they're doing horrible things. What I'm arguing is what does Scripture say in light of that? Or they'll do this. Um, see Peter Wagner and, and, and you know, some of the other guys, um, they actually talk to the demon. They sit down and they talk to the person who... Who has who is demon possessed, and you know they'll they'll bind them in Jesus' name, and then they'll make the demon tell them why they're doing what they're doing to you know to this to this person. Well, think about it. If that's true, if you are talking to that demon, why would you believe the demon? Satan's the father of lies. <laughs> I mean, how can you trust what what the demon says or, or not? Trust the scriptures. And what the scripture says is that there are spiritual forces, so you can't discount them. And what you do is you preach and you pray. You bring the word of God, the gospel to bear, and you appeal to God. And then you are not ignorant, and you take a defensive, a defensive posture. So you appeal to God, and you bring the word of God to bear. Beyond that, you're in experiential land, and you're outside of scripture. So those are two. All right? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Right. You know, give you some other kind of way to fight them in the spiritual warfare text. It doesn't go there. It's just classic sanctification language. It doesn't. Yeah, absolutely right. And there are not any more demons today than there were in you know before Jesus came. And you say, well, why is the Old Testament kind of silent about demons and all of a sudden we're hearing all about demons in the Gospels? Well, because the Son of God's walking the earth. And when Jesus walked in the synagogue, they were forced to expose themselves. And they're there. They're operating right now. You can't see them. Um you can see their effects. You can listen to their mouthpieces and just turn on the TV. <laughs> They're all over the place, right? Some of them are behind the pulpit, the Bible says. There's all kinds of spiritual issues you know, with, within the church. Somebody have a comment over here? I saw a hand somewhere. Okay. So organic issue, spiritual issue, which you can't you preach and pray. The third is sin. And that's... You kind of know that one, right? There's something going on, transgression, omission, iniquity in your heart, unbelief, sin issue. Now, is it possible to have an organic issue, to have a spiritual issue, and to also have a sin issue? Yeah, it is, which is why you might need somebody to come along and help you figure out what's what and know how to apply the Bible in each of those cases. Ronnie? So, like, if you had someone that came to you and they, they said they were experiencing all of these mm-hmm. demonizations and, and mm-hmm. all of that, how would you start to, like, sift through all of that with them using the scriptures? Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I would go there. I would go to the scriptures and I would say, I'd probably start with are they a believer? Do they claim to be a believer? Yeah, that's wonderful. Then if you're a believer, then we obviously then we have one source, the Bible. Yeah, you know, I, I trust the Bible. Well then let's go to the Bible and see what the Bible says about what you're you know, what you're experiencing. Um, you know, we have this idea, and I think this is part of Satan's tool. We have this idea that that, you know, Satan is a really, really, you know, horrible, ugly, mean thing from horror movies or whatever else. Or He's the little red guy with a pitchfork. You dismiss him or you fear him, and fear is a form of worship. And the Bible says he presents himself like an angel of light. Satan's, Satan's work is, you know, is, is conforming the mind through the cosmos, through the systems um, you know, that, that are there. And so you can really see his systems at, at work, and it can be... You know, like the system of abortion, or it can be the system of attacking scripture and science, or or whatever it means. That's where he's working. But a lot of times, when you're dealing with somebody, they're they're kind of categorizing demonization down to these, you know, strange voices, exorcism, you know, things that they've seen from movies or otherwise. So you got to try to get them to the Bible and try to figure out what you know what scripture says, and then and then. Get them to a passage that talks about that, and then help them. Under, you might have to help them understand hermeneutics, you know, because they say, "Well, you know, well, Jesus cast out, you know, demons. Yeah, well, what's going on in the Gospels? You know, is there a command for you to do that same thing, or is that describing what Jesus did? What's well, describing what Jesus did? Why did Jesus do? What do you, do you think that there were more demons 
when Jesus came than before? Did they all just kind of, you know, pop out of hell whenever he came? No, they they were already here, right? Wasn't that you know? And then you you know start working them. Well, well, then what does the Bible command us to do? Let's say what what you're dealing with is actually true. What would the Bible command us to do? So let's look at some passages where Scripture talks about what we do in in the face of demonic forces because they're clearly clearly there. Um, but that that can that'll lead you down a rabbit hole really fast, and and I know that there I don't know if there's the guy's still there, but there was a professor at Liberty years ago um, that we had folks I, I, maybe here maybe at Cornerstone I don't know, but he was doing exorcisms and all kinds of other things, and and um, you know basically it, it wasn't uh, you know full blown Pentecostalism. But it was kind of conservative theology, you know, in that way. Um, and he was messing some people up, you know. I mean, he was, they were doing exorcisms and praying over them. And, and uh, in, the, in the end, people walked out of there blaming the demon for, the re, for their sin and the reason that they were acting the way that, you know, that they were acting. So, yeah, Mark? I was going to say this in the 90s, a guy named Neil Anderson. Oh, yeah. Bondage breaker. I read it. I bought into it all. So everybody started kind of moving that direction. Yeah. Yep. Believe that Christians were possessed and things like that. But yeah. Sort of kind of stepped into that demonic world. Yeah, it's good. So let's get back to our list here. All of those have to do with um, giving a an explanation for our makeup, our problems, our responsibility, how to how to fix our problems. Notice the next one, what guilt is. If the reason that you do what you do is because of sociological effects, your environment, or because your response to somebody else's trauma, can you see how that shifts guilt? And that's the angle. Who is guilty? And then that leads to the next one, how to resolve guilt, how to remove it. Um, so one of the things that they do is tell you that you're really not guilty at all. And you're born that way, right? If you're born that way, then why would you feel guilty you know, about that? In fact, some of the models actually present that guilt in and of itself is a bad thing. And so you actually got to rid yourself. You have to rid yourself of those guilty feelings because that's actually what's causing your problem. Your problem is you feel guilty. And the more guilt you feel, the more dysfunction is going to be in your life, the more your feelings are going to be out of whack. And therefore, we've got to remove whatever the source is causing, causing the guilt. And guess what one of the primary causers of guilt is? The Bible, God. Um, is guilt a topic taught in Scripture? Yeah. All over. I mean, that's one of the primary answers. Is God being cruel to make us feel guilty or cause us guilty feelings? Why? You're exactly right. Why? What's, the, what's God's purpose with guilt? Yeah. The purpose is so that you can come to the remedy for the guilt, which is so that you can have your conscience cleansed. 
But you're not going to have your conscience cleansed figuring out that you have a disorder or somebody else caused your problem. You really shouldn't feel, really shouldn't feel guilty. The purpose of guilt, the purpose of chastisement, the purpose of even as a believer, discipline, is proof that God loves us because what does God want us to do with the guilt? He wants us to not cover our, our sin, but to forsake it and find mercy. And so we come to the Lord. And he, he cleanses us. And then finally, here's an attack on the priesthood of the believer who is, who's able to counsel. Who can help you? This is the you need a professional for that. And I'm not arguing that you just go out there unprepared, not knowing your Bible, not understanding some of these things, and just start hacking away at people's souls. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, we have a biblical counselor here. We have people that are certified to do certain things. and There may be situations that are complicated that you need other brothers to come along and, and help. But the idea that a Christian does not have the tools if they'll apply themselves is ridiculous. Psychiatry attacks the priesthood of the, of the believer. And um, that's why you're here, to be equipped. Look at B. The world's philosophies are a competing religion in opposition to God's word. Their worldviews and presuppositions contradict Scripture. You've heard the statement before. It takes more faith to believe evolutionary theory than it does to believe the Bible. It's a religion. And you start attacking that religion, and you're going you're gonna to find who the priests are, and they're going to rise up, and they're going to, they're going to attack. Yeah, Ed? Um, it? It seems to me that that's the basis for a whole lot of it, is whether or not you believe the Genesis account. If God is the creator of man, mm-hmm. just like if you built a car, yeah. okay, you would be the one who knows about the car and how to fix it. Yep. But if God did not create man, man is an evolved animal, mm-hmm. then everything has to do with you've got an animal there, even a well-developed animal. Yep. What do you do about the animal? That's where I think behaviorism, Skinner came. Mm-hmm. Man is nothing more than an animal. Right. So you can take a monkey and you can train him just like you can train a man. Right. Yes. Yeah. Dead on. And I think you can back up one place, one step further, which I know you would, you would and you know, there's, there's a God who is speaking this creation account, telling us what you know what happened. So, Amen. I mean, and they're intertwined, um, and that's why we started with the sufficiency of Scripture, God and what His Word says, which is why Ken Ham and others, you know, argue, uh, you know, for either the Bible says what it says or it doesn't. And if you give up the Genesis one account, then you you, you know you've already bought the farm. You you've given it up. Um, and obviously, you know, many others. World's philosophies, competing religion. Now, key in on two words here, worldviews and presuppositions. What's a worldview? And how you understand yeah. the world working. How you understand what's going on. You've dealt with that a lot, I'm sure, even when... Um, you know, in the military and otherwise. How, how is this group of people thinking, right? Worldview. I mean, it means what it says. How are you viewing the world? What, what's the system? 
What's a presupposition? What's the word? What comes to your mind? Something that you <laughs> presuppose. Yeah, presuppose. It's, it's a thought that you have yeah. based upon what you believe. Yeah. You hear I, the word. I believe this, therefore, this is true. Do we have presuppositions? Yeah, we all do. We have them when we come to the Bible. We have them when we come to a verse. We read a Bible verse and we automatically think that we know what it means or there are things that are rolling around in our mind. And one of the challenges of interpretation is to is to catch your presuppositional cats. Oh, there's one, there's one. Be aware, I have presuppositions. I gather them and I, I, I put them in a box over here and then I, I just let the Scripture say whatever it says and then I test, I let the cats loose and see which cat I need to shoot and which cat I need to let you know roam around. I mean, that's, that's a challenge. That's hard. We all have presuppositions. I mean, take this for example. You're a Gentile. You grew up in America. So when you start reading, even like this last Sunday, with vowels, it's harder for us to grasp the vows and promises that were made in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Right? You have to force yourself to think that way, which is why there's a grammatical, contextual, you know, historical hermeneutic that, that you're going to. That takes work, you know. A presupp- you're presupposing prior suppositions about you know, certain, certain things. But here's a, a, an, a, an easy way, to, I think, to describe this. I do this in, the, in new members class sometimes. The Bible says, show me what a person does, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what they're, what they're actually thinking. Scripture says that you'll know people by their fruits. It's not what a person says, but what they say and do. That's actually true. First John says, if we say we have fellowship with him, I'll use my children's memorization tool, yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not the truth, right? It's not just what we say. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm saved. And then I go live like the devil. It's not what we say. It's also what, what we do. So what we do in life actually reveals what we believe. And what we believe is based on an authority. Everybody's belief system is based on some authority. As an unsaved man... I had a belief system. I believe in God, believe in heaven, hell, Jesus, religion. Religion's a good thing. Go to church whenever I get older. I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, all of those are that's beliefs. And those beliefs are driving. I don't need to go to church on Sunday. I can I can drink, I can womanize, I can do whatever. And then I'll, you know, ask God to forgive me one day. Besides, God's gonna overlook it all because I'm a pretty good guy. You see how my beliefs are affecting the way that the way that I live. So here's my my, my activities. It's based on a set of beliefs. Now, what led me to put any weight on those beliefs? Where did that come from? Well, there was a, there was an authority, and everybody has an authority. And in my case, probably like a lot of people, it's a hodgepodge of stuff. Well, what I saw my dad do, what my grandpa taught me, what I watched on National Geographic. I mean, whatever. There's, a, there's an authority that's there. What is our authority? It's 
scripture alone, right? Because there's a God who's a creator, as Ed said, who made the card. And he's given us a manual. That's our authority. I mean, I should not have to convince you as a Christian where your authority is. And your authority is not what the world says or what pastor says or the Pope says or anything else. It's what God says. That's the authority. And then out of that authority comes beliefs. This is what the Bible says about man. This is what the Bible says about God. This is what the Bible says about that you're material and immaterial. This is what the Bible says about as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. It's not the external that's the problem. It's the internal. It's what's coming out. And then that's going to change the way that you live. Your behavior then is to come in line with what you believe that's coming out of out of your authority. Now, the gap between what you believe and what you do, that, that's, where, that's where the rubber meets the road in our challenge, right? Because we have the spirit and we have the flesh that's going on there. But we should never doubt the authority. And it takes work to, to go from the authority to the set of beliefs, which is hermeneutics, which is learning why you're, why you're here and, and doing what we're doing. But if you mess up the foundation, then obviously the house is is going to be going to be off. Any comments or questions? You obviously can look at these philosophical competing religion models: atheism, theism, naturalism, holism, reductionism, constructionism, individualism, other-centered, pragmatism, absolutism, hedonism, obedience, victimism. Victimism, see that everywhere today. Responsibility, Gnosticism, you can't really know. Special revelation, only for special people. God's revelation, it's available to everybody. I think one thing that strikes me as we've gone through it is, especially nowadays, it's so common to think that we're the brightest and best generation, that, <laughs> that we have this all this new technology and science, and obviously we are way more educated than Solomon's mind, for example. Um, but we see in the scripture these ideas are not new. There's nothing new under the sun. And, Amen. and the, you know, all of the answers are the same thousands of years ago as they were they are today for this generation. Amen. It's Christ alone. Amen. You know, another thing that um, <clears throat> modern psychology as an industry and as a service is uh, treatment is drugs. It is. It is. So much of it is. It's a lot, and doesn't really solve the doesn't really solve the problem. Puts a band aid on it. It does. And there may be an appropriate time and moment, you know, to yeah. for, to do that in order to stabilize or, or otherwise, and we rejoice in in again the ability that God has given man. But long term, it doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't fix the problem at all. In fact, sometimes it can make it worse. Um, you know, that's. Uh, this there. I was thinking about what Bobby was saying about nothing new under the sun and the whole tech, technology piece. And you think about this. Solomon's day versus today. Nothing new under the sun. You know, when Solomon was talking about talking about that. And you'll hear people say, Well, there wasn't a cell phone, there wasn't a smartphone in Solomon's day. So there's, you know, new. It's something new. But is that actually something new? Think about the first guy that figured out how to do smoke signals. What's he doing? He's communicating. 
to other people over a distance. Well, yeah, it's different if you have a cell phone, but it's not really that much different at all, you know, either. So the maladies that human beings have, the way that we approach life, there's really nothing new under the sun. And um, we can get quite arrogant with our uh, with our abilities. Yeah, Johnny? Like you were talking about with, um, with their, what their authority is, mm-hmm. that's where they're going to build that broken foundation. Yep. They can, they can, here in America, it just seems like it's a lot more uh, discombobulated mm-hmm. because when, like, when I was over in Korea, you know, you have people who are like, they have, uh, it's not that hodgepodge of mm-hmm. I learned this from all of these other people. Yeah. It's more I, I grew up in this religion, mm-hmm. like uh, Islam or wh- wherever else. And so when when we're like going through like those different discipling sessions with people mm-hmm. here in America, what specifically I'm thinking of someone that I'm discipling yeah. right now, okay? Okay. Like here, here's the so he he uh, comes from a family of unbelievers, didn't grow up in the church, uh, he got thought he got saved, but I, I, from what he was saying, I think it was the Lord leading him to, to here, actually, because mm-hmm. now he's here, but prior to coming here, he uh, went into, like, the occult and, like, fire tunnels with, like, uh, people who were claiming to, I know, I, I did the same thing, people who were claiming to be Christians, and they were very charismatic, mm-hmm. uh, sort of demonic, as mm-hmm. he says. Mm-hmm. So now, he, the way he describes stuff is like a, the hodgepodge of, yeah. oh, I've, I've seen this, the experiential. Yeah. And so so I, how do you deal with somebody like that? You know, yeah, yeah. I think you just have to bring them back to the Bible and you have to, you have to, you have to let God's spirit do the work and, yeah. you know, whether they're going to, they're actually going to believe that, you know, or not. And that's part of the trap, you know, it just gets so confusing and so convoluted and, I was really talking about that on Sunday. Um, frustrations. One of the frustrations in dealing with God is there actually can be genuine believers, and I don't know whether this person is a believer or not, but there can be genuine believers in very unbiblical churches, and they're they're they are relegated to struggle with their sanctification because they have they don't have the tools because they got all these crazy beliefs. Like the background that I came out of. And you hear me talk about mysticism a lot because that was the background I came out of, um, and it was it was quite you know convoluted. So they may take the time some time for the Lord to tear some of those things, you know, some of those things down. But it always comes back to the to the Bible, yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. That was that was worth your price of admission this morning, gentlemen. That was that was that was excellent. So we are talking about dealing with believers, you know. And as you're doing this, it, it may be a an opportunity to evangelize, you know, somebody. 
as Jay Adams said, all of the the answers to all of God has all of the answers to all of life's problems. Um, they're available. They're there. They're just on the other side of a wall. You can't get to them. That wall is is sin. It's separated you from God, and yet God has graciously put a door in the wall, and that door is Jesus Christ. You repent and believe, and you come through the door, and it opens you up to all of the you know all of the answers. Um, you start telling an unbeliever to apply some of these types of things. A, they're not going to desire to do it. B, they're not going to be consistent in carrying it out. And and C and D and E, and you probably can fill in the fill in the rest. So, well, we're out of time, and so um, next week we have we believe it or not we have one more teaching session together, and then we're going to have a breakfast. And so you'll be getting some more information about that. So, Father, thank you for this morning and for these men. I just pray that as they go out into a world that denies you and denies your word, that you'll strengthen them. Um, You'll help them to simply put on the full armor of God and uh, trust you and trust your word. And um, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.